0: A couple of weeks ago, we started this series of messages called Perfect Family, and we uh, focused on moving from our reality to God's ideal. In fact, we talked quite a bit two weeks ago about this tension that exists between what is ideal and what is real, that there is this tension there between what we know we're supposed to be and what is actually there. In fact, um, I just want those words up on the screen so you can see real verse ideal. Because we live in a world where most of us who have grown up in church, or even if we haven't grown up in church, we understand what we think family is supposed to be about. We have this ideal understanding of what family ought to look like, and yet we live in the reality of the moment. Now, a couple of weeks ago in the second service, I, I talked about... Our quest as a family for the perfect family portrait. And that it is impossible. Anybody out there ever tried that? Right? And we showed some examples, but I want to show you what came out of those pictures. Alright? Because we actually got a really good picture. I hope it comes up. It was having trouble this morning. Look, look at that. This is where all's and oos are completely appropriate. I mean, look at that. They're all, here just some things to notice, they are all looking at the camera. Nobody's hands are on anybody else. Ava is actually smiling. The other three are kind of smiling, which is a win. All right? And here's what's interesting. That is the ideal, right? That's about as close, perfect as you can get in a picture for our family at this stage of our life. All right? Well, here's the picture right after it. All right? Now, let me interpret some things that are going on here for you. Luke has done something to annoy Maddie. And Maddie is pulling away and yelling, Luke, quit it! Ava is unhappy for some reason. Eli's trying to stay, you know, Eli's our rule follower. He is staying focused on the camera when everything else around is falling away. All right? Now, the truth is, our family, most of the time, is much more like this picture than the first. Amen? Not that you know my family, but I'm your family. I mean, some of y'all see our family and you think, oh, it's that those four great-looking kids. And, you know, Lyle's got that great-looking one. Well, Lyle's okay. But the, the family makes up for him, right? They look great, everything put together. That is not reality, All right? And so we live with this tension, right? The ideal versus the real. And the idea that we have in our minds is what it ought to be like, what it ought to look like. But then we get in the midst of reality. And reality is not the ideal. Reality is that the marriage isn't working out. Or you're a single mom and your family has disintegrated around you. Or you're on the second marriage, and that second marriage isn't exactly what you envisioned. Or you're a newlywed, and it's much harder than you imagined. Or you're trying to have children, and that's not working out like you thought it would. And it's difficult, or your family, or you have children, and that's not quite working out like you thought it would. When they're obstinate, and difficult, and talk back, and the disciplinary things that you were convinced would work, Are not. You've got a prodigal child or grandchild. You've got a wife that won't come to church with you. Or a husband that won't come to church with you. And we are caught in this tension between the real and the ideal. And what we want to do is just to say, well that's okay. That's what everybody's dealing with. That's what society wants us to do. It's just to normalize everything so that nothing feels weird or out of place or irregular. I mean, we are the culture that gives trophies and ribbons to every participant. Whether they deserve it or not, right? I was looking back, my, my dad brought me a my fourth grade autobiography. Now it wasn't spelled correctly, but it was the lifestyle of Lyle Larson, fourth grader. And I look back on all of my, in there I detailed every year what ribbons I won in field day. You remember when, when I was growing up, every event, the first place team got a ribbon. And the second place team got a ribbon. And third place sometimes got a ribbon. But after that, Nothing. But we live in a society where everybody wants to feel okay, be okay. And so we're going through a real difficult time. Then we say, it's just okay, it's just everybody. Everybody's got some problems like that. No family's right. And we settle for less than ideal. But Jesus never gives us that ability to just say, I'm going to settle. And even inside, we all know that we want better. I mention this almost every time we talk about it, but I thought about it again yesterday because we had a wedding here at the church and um, the Holmes and the Lars families were here gathered around. And everybody there, when you were talking about Jared and Mary, want the absolute best for them. You want the perfect family for them. Nobody says to them, y'all just settle for less than ideal. Well, for your kids and for your grandchild kids, you want the absolute best. And One that we understand from Scripture is Jesus was the one that said, shoot for the ideal. In fact, He took their ideal and He moved it to a place that they never expected. The Sermon on the Mount, He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, there's a better ideal than that. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. There's a better ideal than that. When somebody comes to Him and says, how do we get a divorce? Is a bill enough? He says, listen, you have settled for less than God's best Search for the ideal of one man, one woman, separating from their family, coming together for life. Focus on what the ideal is. Jesus taught these things over and over and over. And the people that came after Him would pick them up and try to teach them. But what we see in the life of Jesus is this, is that He always taught that we should strive for the ideal, but He never condemned people when they fell short. But he never gave up the ideal he was comfortable with that tension. So Paul and Peter and the apostles come after him, and they think, "Well, how do we take this stuff and kind of communicate it? How do we take this concept of, of love, this concept of, of what we 're supposed to do with our lives, and this concept of the ideal, and how do we why do we make that really practical everyday stuff and Peter and Paul both come to this conclusion where they try to figure out well, what does that look like in the family? What does a perfect family look like? How does that operate in there? And they both write different sections of Scripture, but we can kind of summarize what they say about the ideal for a family in about four statements. And I want you to look at these four statements of summary that are going to be up on the screens. Basically, this is what they come to. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Lives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Annoy your children. A lot of us look at that and we go, "Woo! I am not doing very well. That's not what our family kind of looks like. Today what I want to do is I want to tackle the most controversial of those four statements. The most Unpolitically correct. I don't even know if that's a word, but we'll make it one, alright? One that is there. The one that people say, boy, I just wish that wasn't even in the Bible, especially women, right? Which one am I talking about? Right. Wives submit to your husbands, right there. Here's why I want to talk about it for just a minute. Which, by the way, let me just, let me just say this to you wives for a minute. Sometimes, in counseling or sometimes in discussion, um, husbands will quote this, okay? Right? Well, it doesn't the Bible say. And then they quote. And the answer is yes, the Bible says that. But generally what I try to do is say, can you tell me the first word of that verse? First word of that verse is? It's what? Wives, right? That's addressed to your wife. There are other verses that are addressed to husbands. And it might be good for you to try to figure those out before you worry about hers. Amen? Women, you don't, that's pretty good, right? Well, yeah, apparently not. Alright. So, I mean, some of, some of you wives are just so mad we're even talking about this today, you're not even, we're done. Pastor, we're done. I mean, it's Memorial Day. What are you doing? Feel good sermon of wives to you. Here's why this is so important, alright? And it's not the most PC thing in the world. And it's not, it's not the one that the world... I mean, this is the one that, that, that the world would throw back and say, look how antiquated the Bible is. Look how old-fashioned the Bible is. It says wives should submit. Nobody believes that today. Here's why it's important. Because the concept here is a specific application of a general principle for all of us. It is a specific application for a general principle for all of us. Here's the verse. This is Ephesians. You've got your Bibles. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is Ephesians 5, chapter 22. And it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as you do to the Lord. To the Lord. And here's what's going on. Jesus had come and had instructed in a brand new way. In a way that blew people's minds and got them off of thinking about what what life was supposed to be like. and, And had completely shifted the ethic of people in that day. He comes and he says the most important question you need to do. Or the most important thing you need to do. Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, soul and spirit. And to love your neighbor as yourself and so he starts teaching about loving your neighbor loving your neighbor this sacrificial kind of love this love where you say what is it my neighbor needs more than what does i need and the idea that comes over and over and over again in that teaching is what does love require of me and so Peter and Paul and James and Andrew and Matthew and all these apostles, once Jesus is gone, is try, they're trying to process his teaching. Jesus only taught for three to three and a half years. They're trying to process all that and figure it all out. and Through the help of the Holy Spirit, figure out how do we instruct people about these things. And so they start taking the applications of this love ethic. It's the first time in the history of the world that we can find where love was the ethic that ought to rule the family instead of power and authority and might. They say, well, how do we do that? What does it look like? What does that love look like in the midst of it? So they try to take the central teaching of Jesus and apply it to every single member of the family. And the reason people go wrong with Ephesians 5.22 is because they forget that the verse before it is Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we were thinking about what Paul was teaching here as a sermon, which he would have been read in that way in the church, this is the main point. This is what gets on the screen. This is what everyone writes in their bulletin. This is the main point. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit is the same word in both verses. It means to come up underneath. To one another. That means mutually to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice it doesn't say out of reverence for one another, right? Right? Because there are times in a family relationship... When the other doesn't deserve our reverence. Amen? Amen? As Speaking as one of the others that often doesn't deserve the reverence, that's true. It doesn't say out of reverence to one another. It says out of reverence to whom? Christ. Everybody is to submit to everybody else inside the family. It's a concept that the Scriptures teaches called mutual submission. It should be the hallmark of Christian families. It should be this distinguishing factor for those families who love the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means is that you say to everyone else in your family... I'm going to leverage my power, my abilities, my talents, my time, my effort for your benefit. I'm going to do everything I can to help you become the person God intends for you to be. To do what God intends for you to do. You look for ways. The the word there means to get up under. You look for ways to get up under the burdens of the people in your family. Why? Out of reverence for Christ, who used his power and authority and resources and time and effort to get up under the burden of our own sin and take that upon himself? Jesus. This is in Scripture. There's this... this, uh, Passage scripture that you all know, but it says right before the most famous, one of the most famous passages of scripture, stories of Jesus, that says Jesus had been given all authority. Jesus had been given all power. Jesus had been given everything he needs. And then the next verse, the next verse starts the story where it says, and he took his outer garment off and wrapped the towel around his waist. And the greatest in the history of the universe began to wash the feet Of God's that would soon walk away from it. And it says that we are to act in that sort of way. In fact, one of the things that Jesus teaches is, the more power and authority you have, the bigger servant you ought to be. This concept of mutual submission leads to one question that I am convinced could revolutionize your families immediately. One question that could change the dynamics of your family right away. You ready for it? Apparently not. Here it is anyway. What can I do to help? That's the question that if you would begin to ask every other member of your family on a regular basis what can I do to help, it would change the dynamic of your family. How can I leverage what I have and who I am and what I have the access to in order to help you for your benefit? What can I do to help? In fact, this isn't just a family question, by the way. Any corporate organization, any social organization, any school any church, where the question that is constantly on the mind of the people is, what can I do to help everybody else, becomes a place of mutual submission and service. So we're going to practice, okay? Now, if you want to feel like you, can, you want to practice without any, you know, consequences, you can look straight at me and I won't answer you, okay? Because if you turn to your spouse, they may tell you, all right? And you may not want to do that right away. So if you want to face this way and do that, that's All right. But we're going to practice, okay? So on the count of three, we're all going to say, what can I do to help, all right? One, two, three, can I do to help, all right? This time we're going to say it as if you actually care or mean it, not just saying it, all right? So one, two, three, what can I do to help? Hey, some of you got it caught in the throat about right here. What can I do to (laughs) help? We'll get there. Hey, kids, let me tell you something. If you want to knock your parents off their feet, just sometime today, it doesn't matter that they think, well, they just heard the sermon and they're doing it. It doesn't matter. You go up to them and say, Hey, mom, dad, just a question. Hey, what can I do to help? Parents, is that all right? Amen. Got some amens in the house of the Lord today. I mean, just, just walk up to them and say, Hey, what can I do? You got a lot going on. What can I do to help? All right. You really want to get them? Wait till they've got friends over. Right? Walk up to them with their friends and just say, Hey, Mom, Dad, you got like one... Hey, what can I do to help? When you leave, the other parents will be like, Teach us how to parent. (laughs) Right? Here's the thing, kids. Just asking that question can save you lots of grief. Right, parents? Amen? Right? Just, what can I do to help? Parents... How would the dynamic with your children change if you started asking them once a day, hey, what can I do to help? You know, as a parent, I can tell you, I know this. In the parent-child relationship, things can go negative pretty quickly and pretty often. And as Christian parents especially, we're always instructing, we're always looking for correction for for teachable moments, and it seems like it can just get negative real quickly. What if instead we began the conversation with, hey, how can I help you? What what can I do to help you? It keeps those conversations from moving in that negative direction pretty quickly. Women, this is a powerful question to ask your husband, your spouse, your fiancé. To go up and just say, listen, I see the burden that you're under. I see all that's happening in your life. I realize there are lots of things. Is there anything I can do today to help you? Is there any way I can today help you do whatever it is God has called you to do? Well, they don't ever ask me that question. Remember last week, those of you who are here, this is about you, not y'all, right? What can I do to help? Men, some of the wives in this room are scared to ask you to do anything because they know the reaction that's going to come. The rolled eyes, or the, uh, well, or the, well, I have my, my schedule, I've got. So just alleviate that and ask on the front end. Hey, honey, on my way to work today, on my way home from work today, is there anything I can do to help you out? anything I can do that would help you with the rest of your day if I could do it? Now, there are obstacles to us actually asking the question. One of those is what Bill said. People answer when we ask. Right? Two big obstacles I can see in a relationship, marriage relationship, family relationship, two big obstacles I can see to actually asking this question are these. Fear and selfishness. Fear. Well, if I ask that question, Pastor, the kids especially are like, I'll be out pulling weeds or, you know, mowing the lawn every day. Or I, I, You don't know my parents. They're scared that people will take advantage of you. They're scared that you'll have to do something that's uncomfortable or you don't like or you don't want to do that will infringe upon your time or your habits or who you are or what you want to do selfishness of i I like things the way i like them if i have to serve if i put myself at the mercy of others what's going to happen what do i do about that remind me again who do we do this out of reverence for christ and when christ went to the father and said hey i see the situation as it's going on on earth and things are pretty bad with your people hey what can i do to help what was the answer You can die. You can go and take last place and be a servant, not the leader. You can be accused of crimes you do not commit and hung on a cross to suffer for the sins of the world. Do you know what? If you ask that question, there is a good chance you might get taken advantage of. There is a good chance people might use you and abuse you. But the truth is, that's what they did to Christ. Out of reverence to Christ, we make our time, our talent, our energy Available, And if people take advantage of you, welcome to being a follower of Jesus Christ. He never promised us mansions and gold and cars, no matter what they tell you on TV. They promised us a life of devotion to Him and a reward in the end that is much greater than anything you can imagine here. You see, the problem is... Some of you have tied your happiness to everything in your life, working out and everybody in your life doing what you want them to do. Can I tell you something? You'll never be happy that way. If you get everybody in your life doing exactly as you expect them to do, you will be in charge, but you will not be happy. Because Scripture teaches us the way that is right according to the Lord is a life of submission, mutually looking to serve other people. When people say, well, listen, if if everybody is deferring and if everybody's serving and everybody's asking, how can I help, how can I help, how can I help? The question arises, then who's the boss? I always thought it was Angela, not Tony, by the way. Some of you will get that, some of you won't, that's alright. But you know what I mean? If everybody's deferring, who's in charge? Listen, this has nothing to do with the authority you have. It's how you use the authority you have. Husbands, I believe scripture calls you the head of the family. So serve as the head of the family just as Christ serves as head of the church and laid his life down for her. I don't think anybody has ever questioned whether Jesus was in authority when we come to studying the Scriptures. I'm not talking about secular world. I'm talking about followers of Jesus. They never questioned his authority. And yet, how did he show his authority? He died. This isn't about your authority. It's about how you use your authority. I mean, look at what it says about Jesus. This is in Romans chapter five. We're going to finish with this um, passage of scripture. Romans chapter five. It says that while we were still helpless. Romans chapter five. For while we were still helpless. Do you know the way they say? Another way to say helpless. In need of help. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still helpless. While we couldn't do anything about it. While we were not doing what God had called us to do. While we weren't being the husband or the father or the child that we were supposed to be. While we weren't being the wife or the sister or the mother or the child that we were supposed to be. While we weren't being that, Christ died for us. The ungodly. Do you know who the ungodly are? You. Me. All of us. The world. He died for us. He goes on the next verse to say, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone they've dared to die. Well, listen, we won't die for somebody that's good. Then the last part of this, the last verse of this, I'm going to put up. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. And now while we were yet sinners, Christ died. If you look at your family right now and you say, we are not anywhere near ideal. The reality of who we are is so far away from what God intends. I don't know how to begin to get there. Can I suggest to you that you begin by just asking that simple question, how can I help? Wives, ask your husbands. Mothers, ask your children. Children, ask your moms. Ask your dads. Husbands, ask your wives. Fathers, ask your children. And I'm not talking about, we're going to ask this afternoon, and when they say, "Oh, I don't have anything right now. Well, I ask, I'm done. I mean on a consistent, regular basis. Can I challenge you to do this? Over the next few days, once a day at least, ask every member of your family, how can I help? And see if it begins to change. You know why it changes? It's because it forces us to lean into the family instead of pulling away. And what Christ did for us is He leaned in to sacrifice for us. So out of reverence to Him, can you help one another? One last thing and then we're done, I promise. Here's the last thing. When you want to ask it the least, you need to ask it the most. When you want... To ask it the least. You need to ask it the most. Let's pray.